What's up? This is the Legendary Tales podcast. I am one of your hosts, Isadora Martin Dye. Oh. Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? Uh, I'm your other host, Adam Bloor. This is the Grumpy and Angry podcast. Yeah, it's Monday. We're not feeling great, but we have both got our podcast juice. And we're going to soldier through. Yep. It's going to be fun. Actually, I'm really excited about the topic I'm doing. So mm-hmm. let's see. All right. Who's going first today? So is this an odd or even episode? This is episode number eight. So I should be going. F- no, you go first on even episodes because I did the first episode first. Okay. That's how I, I had to remember it today as well because I was like, I really don't want to go first. I really hope it's not an odd numbered episode. Well, if you don't want to go first, you don't have to. Well, you can go first then. I Okay. All right, guys. So we are doing legendary buildings today, which was something Adam picked. And I it's a really random topic. I'm not sure what inspired it. Um. There are a lot of really historically relevant buildings in the country. Oh my God. There are a lot of historically relevant buildings in the state where I grew up that all have creepy legends tied to them. Did you actually end up doing one of them? Yes. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. The, okay. one in, the one in the city where I went to university. Oh, cool. We mentioned that on episode mm-hmm. one, right? Yep. All right, cool. Well, I had nothing in mind when Adam mentioned this podcast topic at the end of last week. So I originally thought I'd go with the Taj Mahal because that's something that really interests me. But actually, I got inspired by seeing that we have some Australian listeners and decided to try and find a legendary Australian building. It was kind of an idle research to begin with, and then I totally fell in love with the topic and found not just one but two closely related buildings that I think are an amazing part of Australian history. I would say that one is very legendary. It's actually a World Heritage Site. And the other one, chances are you guys may have not ever heard of, even if you're from Australia. Okay. So I'm going to start with a poem, as is the legendary way. I don't have a poem this week. Sorry. If we both had poems every week, it'd be really bad. Yeah, it would be worth Okay. It. Now, this one comes from Warren Fahey, uh, the Australian Folklore Unit. I didn't get the impression he wrote this poem. I think it's contemporary, but I couldn't find the sources for it. And I have also edited it a little bit because it was super, super long and we don't have all day. From east and west and south and north, past haste the visitors set forth to face the winds and water's wrath and Maldemare condition. All who can raise the cash to go, Tom, Dick and Harry, high and low, to Sydney now in numbers flow to see the exhibition. Turks, Jews and Chinamen all flock to land to look at Mort's famed dock or to eat in native Sydney rock in spite of prohibition. From men on strike, John means to go and sport his pigtail at the show, while Melbourne sends Kong Meng and co. to Sydney's exhibition. They say that lodgings can't be got unless you like to pay the shot of charges made uncommon hot, not even the petition, of homeless families of veils or sleepy children's horrid wails, and lots of roosting on the rails bound Sydney's exhibition. Well, let's hope as all enjoy their trip with nothing to annoy, and that hosts of sights won't cloy or pull by reputation, while we who forced to stay at home without a chance to get away read in the papers day by day of Sydney's exhibition. Hmm. So you're going to be talking about Sydney. And its expedition. <laughs> Thank you for uh, editing out the, the length. 
Um, yep, no, it was about three I'll, times. I also want to give you a round of applause. Everyone, all of our listeners, give Dora a round of applause because she barely stumbled over anything. I got through that first time. That was wonderful. Um, you couldn't have edited out the the mild racism <laughs> there actually, in the, the second verse. I edited in the mild racism <laughs> because... You edited it in? Well, I didn't edit it in. It wasn't in there and then you added it? <laughs> <laughs> I... I wanted to show that we are going back in time here. Yes. This is not a contemporary issue that we are discussing. No, it doesn't sound like um, it. And honestly, it's part of what we're talking about, which is kind of international relations at the time. Mm. So unlike any other podcast I think we've done before, I'm going to give you a quick list of my sources. Why? <laughs> what are those? <laughs> <laughs> I heavily relied on them. People have done a lot of research on this and... Honestly, I've just stolen a lot of it and put it together into something that works for this podcast. Um, but versus me saying, and I got this paragraph from here and mm -hmm. this piece of note from here, here's a general thank you to the Royal Exhibition Building in Carlton Gardens World Heritage Management Plan by Lovell Chen Architects, Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC News Australia, something rbgsyd.nsw.gov.au. AU and the Daily Te Telegraph. Seems legit. Yeah, sure. Well, it, it is legit, that one, but it, it's, I don't know. Thanks, guys. Um, okay, so let's start with what are expeditions, because that's kind of the premise of the two buildings that we're talking about, is expeditions. The concept of the international expedition evolved slowly with the first formal display of manufacturing goods being held by the Society of Arts in London in 1756. This is a World's Fair. Before the World's okay. Fair. So it grew in Britain, France, and elsewhere in Europe. And one of the people that I'm quoting has actually said that you could almost call this the exhibition era. Mm -hmm. Between 1851 and 1915, they held something like 53 international exhibitions. 53? Yeah. Wow. So it wasn't like a World's Fair, which happened in America, which happened every year. Mm -hmm. They were happening all over all the time. Okay. They were supposed to store objects that were intended to inspire feelings of human progress and achievement. And each of the exhibitions had its own identity, but there were several like features in common okay. that kind of made them, I don't know. Cohesive or? Yeah. Um, buildings were set in planned spaces, often including gardens. There were a number of exhibition complexes that had their own iconography. A lot of it was domes, viewing platforms, pavilions. It had a fairly religious feel to it, the buildings themselves. They, the success of the exhibition depended on the power to attract visitors. So were they providing new and exciting things? And it was basically filled with food, drinks, souvenirs, stuff that people had never seen before. And unlike most of what was happening at this point, where it was very much about work hard, spend little, this was really a excuse for people to... It's the first thing of consumerism. Okay. So people were actually encouraged to go there and spend money. Mm -hmm. It was designed to be entertaining and expensive, as well as educate and inform people. Between the Great Exhibition in London, the Crystal Palace, in 1851, and the Paris Exposition. Exhibition? exhibition? It says exposition here, but I'm assuming they mean expedition. Oh, you mean exhibition? Yep. You said expedition. 
Yep. I've been very confused for the last like fifteen, not fifteen. Exhibition. Minutes. Yes, that's the one because you keep saying you kept saying expedition, and I Look, was like, there. What? Exhibition. <laughs> there we go. Uh, of nineteen hundred, there were fifty-three international ones. A lot of the places that they were held, the word palace was included, but it didn't actually mean any royal connection. Okay. The just first, to, uh, sorry, just to yeah. imply some sort of gravitas? Yeah, honestly, because they were huge. Okay. The the kind of buildings that were being built hadn't been seen outside of royal buildings okay. at this point. They made their way to Australia in the late 1800s. The seven were held in Australia, one in Sydney from 1879, Melbourne in 1880 and 1888, and they were also held in Adelaide, Hobart, Brisbane, and Lossetton. Sorry, Australians. Tell me how that was incorrect. Towards the end of the 19th century, in most countries other than the United States, they tended to uh, fall by the wayside. There was an increasing awareness of the element of drudgery in people's work and the existence of poverty, and the exhibitions were actually seen as a kind of slap in the face Plenty. Is it sort of like visiting, like driving through the the cities outside of Disney World? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, it's like going to Disney. It's this like, was the going to Disney okay, World. Yeah. And everyone was poor. Living in the shadow of Disney. Yeah, and it was not, they were not considered, uh, come the, 19th cent- the end of the 19th century, except for in America, where at that point then the World's Fairs began to pick mm-hmm. up. Okay, so the Sydney's International Exhibition was the first one in Australia, and it opened before Melbourne's first international exhibition. Basically, that is the premise of what we're going to talk about. Okay. They opened within a year of each other, and these were the two basically biggest cities in Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. So, the Garden Palace of Sydney. So, I've got a whole load of notes on this, and I've done a whole load of notes on this based on all these articles by these great newspapers that really try very hard to produce good journalism but one thing that i hadn't really realized until i got into this was how little any of these people had looked at the aboriginal yeah it i I mean i spent lots of time in america native american rights are sometimes just whitewashed for want of a better word Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem that that was any different in the way that they've written about these buildings no so i've spent quite a lot of time, or not quite a lot of time, but I've tried really hard to tell you about what the ground was doing before they came along and put up these big buildings. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's really important Yeah, behind just a beautiful building. Um, before the European incursions, the area that would become the Botanic Gardens was used by the Aboriginals as an initiation ground. The Kadigal were hunter-gatherers, and their lives were intertwined with the land and harbour, which were abundant with possum, emu, kangaroo, insects, reptiles, and sea creatures. They used tools and weapons made from the plants in the area to catch food and spent much of their time hunting and fishing. The women were adept at hand and line fishing and held in high esteem as the primary fishers of their community. They made fishing lines from the silk thread of the golden orb spider's web, dried lumbara leaves, palm tree husk, and kangaroo and swine. The waters of... Now, this is where I'm going to pronounce the probably a highly significant name badly. Wakan Malagali. Wakan Malagali were their special hunting ground 
And these waters were also a ceremonial area where complex, complex rituals were encountered. The first fleet arrived and they docked just along the river from this point at Toby Gully, which is where the Sydney Opera House stands. And they renamed this area, the Wakamagali, as Farm Cove, which I am going to now call it because I'm probably butchering Wakamagali. Yeah. Wakamagali. So they initially took this area and... So they initially took this area and their plan was to turn this area into a farm, which is why it's called Farm Cove. Mm -hmm. But the... Soil was actually really bad, and there were lots of rats, and that didn't really work. They then decided to turn it into a botanic garden, and it's actually the oldest botanic garden in the world and predates Kew, which is in London, by 25 years. Totally later, in 1954, Farm Cove was also the first place that Queen Elizabeth landed at the beginning of her first trip to Australia, it was the first occasion on which a reigning monarch had set foot on Australian soil and she disembarked at Farm Cove. Hmm. That was nothing to do with no, what we're continuing on with. It's been significant for yeah. a while. So a reworking of London Crystal's Palace, which is where the very first exhibition was held. The plan for the Garden Palace was similar to that of a large cathedral, having a long hall with lower aisle on either side like a nave, and a transpet of similar form, each terminating in towers and meeting beneath a central dome. Built to a design by James Barnett, it features four towers which could be seen from almost any suburb in Sydney. It had 2,000 men working on it, day and night, using electricity for the very first time. So for the very first time, they were actually able to work around the clock, and the building was built in eight months. That is really important because actually work had started on our other building previous to this, mm -hmm. but they wanted to be the first place to hold an exhibition in Australia, mm -hmm. so they really pushed to get this building built first. They also built a steam-powered tramway to help transport visitors around the city, and it was one of the main attractions of the city. However, although a few people died, um, we'll just skip over that. <laughs> As bit. they do in major construction. Yeah. It was a great success, and actually the transit system is still one of the, based on the transit system that exists okay. today. The person who successfully bid for the job was a guy named John Young, and he had actually worked on the Crystal Palace, and in in Sydney had built the General Post Office and the exhibition building at Prince Alfred Park. He was a really experienced contractor, but the building was only ever designed to be fairly temporary. Mm-hmm. It was, the dome itself was 100 feet in diameter and 210 feet high, just to give you an idea of how big. That was just the dome. The building itself was over 244 meters long. It had a floor space of over 112,000 meters. It included 4.5 million feet of timber, <laughs> 2.5 million bricks, and had 243 tons of galvanized corrugated iron in it. Did they bring that timber with them, or were they just like ravaging the Australian landscape for materials? I don't think they were being kind to the Australian landscape mm. at this point. We'll go into some of the statistics of what was going on at Melbourne, because I found the statistics for Melbourne, not for Sydney. But the speed with which these cities were growing, and the Brits were shipping convicts to them. Yeah. 
it was growing so rapidly that mm-hmm. they had to do anything they could to keep up. Mm-hmm. Also, weirdly, they built the first hydraulic lift in the North Tower. Yeah. So inside the building, there was a colossal statue of Queen Victoria, who was the queen at the time. There were restaurants, oyster bars, tea rooms. And the city would have been absolutely buzzing during the exhibition time. For seven months, more than one million people came into the complex to look at all the different things that were on show. They had about 20 hectares of botanic gardens filled with bandstands, stalls, entertainments, eateries, and small exhibition buildings. And the palace garden was the centerpiece with all manner of inventions, technology, art, and ideologies. It's really... One of the really cool things that I found out about the expeditions, exhibitions, <laughs> is that the they weren't just there to show new inventions. They were there to show new culture. People would have had very little access to other places in the world, and, and they were asked, different countries were asked to sh- come and show the best of what their country had to offer. As long as they were European. No, they had people from China and mm. all over coming in. But part of that leads through to the poem that I read and why I didn't cut <laughs> the line about the Turks and the Chinamen. Yeah. Is because a lot of these people were being seen for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they were bringing, for want of a better word, a stereotypical culture or to be exhibited. Yeah. They were coming in as... Like caricatures. Yeah, they weren't coming in as people. Yeah. They were coming in as a representation of their country. Mm-hmm. Much like for those in England, the Eurovision Song Contest or the Olympics. Yeah. Where people show and they dress up in national dress and it's an opportunity for them to actually teach people a little bit more about their country. Maybe caricature is not the right word then because um, that implies some, some S- level of... Uh, humor? Uh, stereotype? Uh, it sound, I mean, they're representatives. Yeah. So they were they were coming to attempt to tell about as much of their culture as they could in a very short period of time. I'm sure that, I mean, being the first time you would you would have experienced a culture that different from yours, you, I'm gonna, I'm going to guess, maybe unkindly, that most of the people who were at these exhibitions who weren't Turkish or Chinese or whatever would take away a stereotype. Yeah, a stereotype, a slightly inconsistent or just flat-out inaccurate portrayal of these cultures. Yeah, and they were also exhibiting Aboriginal stuff. Okay. So they were doing the same not only with other cultures, but with the culture that they had come in and replaced. Yeah. Which shouldn't be overlooked that this was not long after they had basically decimated half of the national population of Australia Mm -hmm. and replacing it very, very rapidly with a much more European and westernized culture. Yeah. So this building, this amazing work of art, of engineering and construction, honestly, there's very few people probably in Australia that have ever heard of it. This one. Mm -hmm. Because on September 23rd in 1882, Three years after it was completed, it burnt to the ground. Hmm. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because this is what we do, and this is a kind of legendary conspiracy theory, cool. I guess. This is I'm going to give you some kind of set the scene. When the fire was raging in its greatest strength, the sun beho- seen behind the burning palace threw a haze of smoke rising above the horizon, its crimson disc. 
the scene was most imposing, as it was the most pitiful ever seen in the colonies. The roar of the flames leaping up from the basement through the circular aperture of the fountain sounded, the men said like an explosion. Flames wreathed around the great bronze statue of Her Majesty the Queen and went rushing up in long tongues to the dome. The stained glass of the skylight dropped in a molten rain. Volumes of black smoke rolled up, and with like a crash, the peal of thunder, the mighty dome fell. In less than an hour, the whole edifice with its contents was totally destroyed. Of the fire's ferocity, the watchman's hose was only a drop to quench the furnace, the paper said. This is the Sydney Herald. Falling cinders set fire to houses in Potts Point, and the heat cracked the neighbouring street's windows. So, within hours, this building was destroyed. It was basically made of timber. Yeah. And it went up, and it went up, and it went down. And the nearest thing I can think to that is when we watched Notre Dame burn recently. Oh, right, yeah. Which was just, like, one of those moments where I think everyone around the globe, and obviously it wasn't global news at this point, but everybody around the globe could not believe that this building of art and engineering could suddenly just be gone. Be gone. There are I ton- forgot that that happened. <laughs> I forgot that Notre Dame burned down until you just mentioned it. Um, it was a horrible day. It was not great. No. So conspiracy theories from dynamite plots to masked men and trains of gunpowder were bandied about as to why it burned. It is universally accepted that it was awesome. Okay. One theory is that the and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Macquarie Street residents were upset that their harbour views had been stolen by the giant uh, building had lit it ablaze. This was the most expensive street, basically, to live on mm-hmm. in Sydney. Okay. And they had built this building right between them and the harbour. Ah. On the botanical yeah, gardens. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see that that would have... But the so wait the, they were impl- implying that the Aboriginal Aborigine burnt burned it down. No, they're implying that the residents of okay, this expensive okay. street burnt Got it, it down. Yep. Another was that it was burnt to destroy the census of eighteen eighty one, which was stored in the palace because the records apparently exposed embarrassing secrets about the convict and squatter origins of many of the leading families. Was that a secret? I thought it was. Pre- I mean, it was well known that England was basically just shipping convicts they're criminals to australia yeah but maybe if you had changed your life around you didn't want people to know why you were Uh, yep fair um it was built by a whole load of this air i mean the palace itself the workmen were convicts generally yeah yeah um the fire and destroyed not only the 1881 census it destroyed colonial era records land occupation records Railway surveys, artworks, the foundation collection of the Technological and Mining Museum, which had been stored there for safekeeping, a new map of the colonies, which had taken a year of work to compile. However, most importantly, it destroyed five to a thousand pieces of Aboriginal artifacts. They had been collected together and kept in the palace, and all of them were destroyed. And that, the, excuse me, um... So it is widely regarded as being arson, as being yeah. a, an act of arson. Yeah. But in the, the best, the most common conspiracy is that it was just some people were like, we can't see the coast from here. We're going to burn down this building. Yeah. Oh. And as, su- as such, destroyed a vast collection of Aboriginal artifacts. By the way, I will say that these artifacts included body parts, 
that was stolen by anthropologists from the disarmed and disenfranchised aboriginals. Jesus. Yeah. These were important relics. Yeah. And this was an important site for mm-hmm. them. As luck would have it, one luxuriant item from the era appeared to have been moved from the palace right before it was set ablaze. In 1878, Betchenstein Concert Grand Piano, which wowed the judges at the exhibition so much that it was awarded first prize in the musical instrument category, happened to have been moved right before the fire. That's convenient. Well, I think I think bearing in mind all the other stuff that was lost, probably this was just a happy <laughs> no, coincidence. It must have been part of the conspiracy. And it recently was dusted off to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the burning the palace. I don't think you celebrate the <laughs> burning. You celebrate it being built. Some people do. And uh, where the pow- in the powerhouse museum, which is where it was stored, um, and it was actually. Uh, played by apparently a very famous Gerard Willems, who's a very famous concert pianist and classical scholar. And apparently it was one of the most, like, unbelievable concerts. Um, a very moving tribute mm-hmm. in Australia. Okay. Since it's legendary and it wouldn't be the same if I didn't tell you a ghost story. I snapped my fingers there if you couldn't hear it. All right, I'm going to tell you a ghost story. Daily Ter- Telegraph. From the tales of past caretakers and staff long since dead to the gloomy ponds and owls. Why do I read everything now like it's a poem? (sighs) Could you love the prose? From tales of past caretakers and staff long since dead to the gloomy ponds and owls circling overhead. There is plenty to fright and delight, but for Sophie Daniel, the garden's community and educational program leader, I've lost it. It stopped rhyming. Yeah, (laughs) the garden to Rathbone Lodge is the one place that makes her skin crawl. The historic sandstone cottage was originally built in 1856 as a residence for the governor's gardener. Now used as a meeting place for staff and functions, the cottage is the site of a ghoulish tale of a visitor who encountered the unexplainable. He went upstairs to brush his teeth, and when he was alone he had an odd feeling, this Daniel said. He looked into the room opposite him, and a woman was standing side on reading a piece of sheet music, and she looked up at him and had empty sockets in her eyes where her eyes should have been. Understandably, the guest turned and left, yelling that he was not staying in the house a minute longer, Miss Daniels said. Add to this the number of convicts who lived and died and were buried on the site, and the sounds of the rustling giant bamboo grooves, groves, groves, that sound like fingernails on a chalkboard, and the endless imagination of the tour guide, you have the recipe for a very dark fairy tale right Mm. in the heart of Sydney. So that was one palace. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned quite a few times, at the same time as this being built, Melbourne were doing its very best to beat them. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the exhibition building in Melbourne, more recently called the Royal Exhibition Building, but it isn't. It was just given that name. Okay. Oh, right. Because the word royal was used just... Palace Royal. Yeah. With no connection to the... So... Let's go back to the Aboriginals again, because I am not going to just jump straight into the story without mentioning that there was a tribe worshipping on this land. Of course there was. Before they did this. Hey. Uh, uh, this is from, I could, uh, by the way, the amount of information I could find on this was almost nothing. So 
This is taken from a tour website. As you meander through the Royal Botanic Gardens, you will learn about the ancestral lands of the Kulin Nation and understand how the native flora was used by the first people for food, tools, and medicine. I will say that research on this building was a lot easier to do, mainly because A, it's still standing, and in 2004 it was registered as a World Historic Site, World Heritage Site, so for that they had to submit a 102-page document, which, yes, I did read most of it, Adam's face, to uh, to be able to get the World Heritage mm-hmm. Declaration. So this is what the World Heritage Organization say about the Aboriginals. The Exhibition Garden Meeting Place is a registered Aboriginal heritage site under the Aboriginal Heritage Act of 2006 for its contemporary values. The meeting place has been f- frequented since before World War One. It consists of two large Morton Bay fig trees in the surrounding area at the edge of the Carlton Gardens near the junction of Nicholas and Gertrude Street. No Aboriginal party has been appointed for the area. However, if uh, they are appointed under the Aboriginal Heritage Act, then they will be. this management plan will be amended to identify them. They would also happily engage with the Aboriginal party in respect to the management of the palace. Just saying. They're open to talking to the Aboriginals about mm-hmm. what they want to do, apparently. But according fig, to them, according to them, the fig trees, the fig trees in the gardens are apparently. I learned a lot about figs, but apparently they're quite um, closely tied with a lot of Aboriginal culture, hmm. and there's two there. Uh, these fig trees can last 150 years. I, on the other hand, like I said. Finding this information was really hard. It says here that they had been frequented since before before World War One by the Aboriginals, but I didn't get any information as to like how long that was or whether these trees were originally the same trees that were stood or if okay. they were planted. Yeah, right. I, I couldn't really understand if they'd been planted by the botanical gardens and because they were something that was closely related to Aboriginal culture that had attracted an uh, Aboriginal tribe there to worship, mm-hmm. or if it was the other way around. Yeah. wasn't very clear. Possibly not by accident, mm. but it wasn't very clear. Say, it's not, do you have an idea of which way that, that leans? No idea. I couldn't say. Um, as early as 1839, the Carlton Gardens were envisaged, envisaged by Charles Joseph Ledcrobe as being part of a green belt surrounding the town of Melbourne. This open space remained undeveloped until 1855 when, based on a plan associated with Edward Latrope Bateman, they were carried out to develop the place as a public garden for passive recreation. It's rather forward thinking of him to design a green belt Mm -hmm. back in the 1800s, I think. So let me tell you about a little bit about Melbourne because I said to you I could find these facts and figures about Melbourne at this time but not so much about Sydney. The young city of Melbourne had been enriched by a gold rush in the 1850s, and its population had swelled to more than a quarter of a million people. The place was buzzing with manufacturers and commerce, and there were seemingly jobs and opportunities for everybody. And what better way to trumpet this success by hosting a great international exhibition? Mm -hmm. The population doubled to almost half a million in that decade, drawn by the fervor of commerce and development. Thousands of houses were built, among them numerous mansions, these grand houses were stuffed full of art, luxury goods, and desirable objects. These were the people that were shopping 
in the exhibition. Mm -hmm. And they were there to shop. Venetian glassware, ware, Dresden porcelain, examples of Chinese and Japanese decorative arts. And many of the international visitors remained in Melbourne once the exhibition had closed. Um, from everything I can find out about this, while that poem was slightly racist, in fact, they were very welcoming and it was a huge cultural boon to the area. And they shared a lot of different cultures and many of the people from elsewhere felt very welcomed there and mm. stayed. Yeah, you know, that's good. At the time, home known high home. At the time, home ownership was rated. Okay, I'm gonna try that again. At the time, the home ownership rate was the highest in the British Empire, thanks to high wages and plentiful land. The development of railways, as we already talked about, was allowing the suburbs to be built further out from the centre, and suburbanisation was becoming the opiate of the middle class. Basically, at this point, Melbourne was actually really ahead of most other European countries in the sense of because it was being built as a new city, mm -hmm. they were able to implement a lot of stuff that was still coming into London and other places like train lines, suburbs, green belts. It was really a very um, forward-thinking place at this point. The exhibition building was built in 1980, in 1879, just as the, well, the exhibition was going on in Sydney. And the building sits on 64 acres. It was 150 meters long, and it was surrounded by four city streets. The building is very similar in layout to the one that we talked about. Like I said, these buildings were, did fit in with kind of a plan. Mm -hmm. They had domes, they were, based on often a cross. The main building known as the Great Hall is still surviving. And the site comprises three zones of roughly equal size. The permanent exhibition building is on the high ground and in the center. Then there's a formally laid out palace garden in the forecourt and the Carlton's gardens in the northern zone. What is remaining is only a portion of the complex that was there. Many of those bits were actually designed to be taken down. They weren't designed to be permanent. Mm -hmm. But what was very rare for this building was that the Great Hall was always designed to be permanent. The... Uh, blah, 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 this is a lot of boring stuff. The uh, exhibition building is constructed in traditional 19th century materials. The walls of the building are constructed from cement rendered brickwork. And... Notice that these were brickwork and cement, which was the other one was primarily timber and steel. The roof, however, is timber with a galvanized steel roof. The buildings and grounds were designed by Joseph Reed of Reed and Barnes, and they won a competition to be able to design it. And he said he was going to design something in a Beaux Arts aeraxical scheme with the building as a palace, primarily in the Italian Renaissance style. What? What does that first bit even mean? Beau arts. I can, I can tell you. They adopted the little-known German Rothenbostel mode and other familiar stylish motifs from an earlier international exhibition building in Britain and Europe. It was a rounded arch style made popular in northern Germany. I don't know. Whatever. It was a building. Hmm. Um, it had got all these ecclesiastical same things as most of the other buildings, though. Crucifix plan, nave, transverts. What's a nave in terms of architecture? 
the long bit that goes down the middle with the seating on either side. Okay, like you would see in a cathedral. Yeah, okay. exactly. So they were built very much to look like cathedrals. Okay. Big cathedrals. But it was more... Okay. It was more of a temple of industry than a palace or a place to worship. Wow. Okay, that was a quote from someone. I figured it was. Because <laughs> I'm not that poetic. <laughs> the Royal Exhibition Building demonstrates the principal characteristics of the Victorian free classical architectural style to express the form and ideas of the International Great Exhibition Movement. Around 1.5 million people visited the 1880 Melbourne International Exhibition. This was right as the alteration of power between Sydney and Melbourne was taking place, right? So they were really kind of fighting to see who would be the primary city. Mm -hmm. Melbourne got a second exhibition in 1888 which really kind of dominated yeah um about 2.2 million people visited that <sighs> which amounted to about 70 percent of the population of australia wow which is quite huge That's a lot it was also the first ex exhibition to open at night because of electric lighting huh. and they lit up the whole of the building from the outside apparently you could see it from forever miles because yeah. there was just nothing blocking it because there's nothing in Australia. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> we're we're reaching out to our Australian listener. We love you. <laughs> Please don't stop listening. Um, of course, this couldn't last. Did it burn down as well? No. Uh, a bit of it did, actually, <laughs> later. But no, uh, there was a crash. Because this is what happens after a huge... Boom and bust. Boom. We got a bust. Strikes, academics, plague of locusts. You know. An actual plague of locusts? Like legit that's, actual plague of locusts. That's really biblical. Do you like how I just slipped that in there? Yeah. Okay. And Marvelous Melbourne was uh, crashed into economic smithereens. Wow. Apparently. In eight, however, I will say that in 1901, Melbourne became the nation's capital with the opening of the first parliament celebrated at the exhibition building. Congratulations, Melbourne. Yep. So it was also on September the 3rd, the Countess of Hopeton, wife of the Governor General, announced the winners of the competition to, destroy, to destroy. design the Australian national flag. And it was unfurled and flown above the Royal Exhibition Building. So not only was the Royal Exhibition Building the first place that the Australian flag was ever flown, it was, almost, always, it was also the first place that Parliament in Australia was ever hmm. held. What happened subsequent to that is that it did start to pick up. Now it was the nation's capital. Um, new law courts, banks, cathedrals, you know, the whole thing. The whole so thing. The whole city started to... Become a city. Become a city. It was only intended to be a temporary measure that they used the exhibition building as for Parliament. Mm -hmm. But Melbourne remained the seat of power until 1927 because of... Oh, so I didn't realize this. They built a new city, or they were going to build a new city located between Melbourne and Sydney to be the capital mm -hmm. because neither one of the other would accept the other one as the capital. <laughs> and it was going to be called Cranberra. Oh. I don't know if Cranberra exists. I don't think it does, but I'm also wildly ignorant. Tell us. Tell us, please. How spelled? Okay. 
I'm going to quickly, there is something that I'm going to come back to, but it's really relevant to today. Okay. So, Second World War, it morphed into an Air Force training school where people learned the art of wireless mechanics, instrument making, and trench digging. And post-war, temporary huts were erected to provide a red, uh, reception center for migrants on their journey to a new life. So it was basically like Ellis Island. It's played, this particular building has played so many roles in Australian history. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The 1956 Summer Olympics officially was held in Melbourne, Australia. And with the exception of the equestrian events, which were held in Stockholm, Sweden, because apparently even with an Olympics being held, Australia wouldn't relax their immigration laws for the horses, their quarantine laws. So they couldn't take the horses there, so they did the horses in Stockholm. They held several of the games actually in the Great Exhibition Hall. And it was another big boon for Australia. And Australia didn't, in fact, hold the games again until 2000, where this time Sydney won, and Sydney was host to the games. I didn't realize there was this huge rivalry between Sydney. And I wonder if it is a real thing between, like, real like people on the ground between Melbourne and Sydney. I would guess so. I'm trying to think of something similar. I mean, we have state stuff like that in the states. <laughs> Obviously, like state rivalries between Michigan and Ohio, but nothing but neither of those states are the nation's capital. Yeah. Like and they were never in contention yeah, to be I the mean, nation's maybe, capital. Yeah, maybe maybe when cuz wasn't Richmond the nation's capital for a while? In Virginia. Yeah, and then DC. I don't know, but it's kind of interesting that there was this big rivalry. Thereafter, the exhibition building became a workhorse, a versatile working venue that had to pay its own way. For decades, it housed an aquarium, which had man-eating crocodiles. That was the bit that burnt down. It was also the venue of choice for pageants, concert, royal visits, air balloon rides, boxing matches, penny farthing, races, tug-of-war concerts, contests even. Um, It basically became your go-to venue for everything that you wanted to spend money on. It didn't get a whole lot of renovation, and it slowly started to decline in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. They pulled down a couple of wings because they were getting so poorly maintained. And the starting kind of late 1900s, they started putting this application together. I believe the application got put together in 1994 to turn it into a World Heritage Site, and it was officially designated a World Heritage Site in 2004. Hmm. Now I'm going to jump forward to a little bit of COVID news. Okay. During the global influenza pandemic of 1918, Spanish flu, it became a makeshift hospital. The It was one of 23, uh, 35 temporary hospitals set up around Victoria during the Spanish flu, and up to 1,500 patients were treated there at a time. Mm. Just a continuation of it being very important like it did throughout everything. Its it did everything for australia um or for melbourne <laughs> i guess um, don't let sydney know yeah it was also pegged as a it uh, they revealed a couple of months ago that it was going to be converted for covid care hospital and temporary morgue i couldn't find actually whether they ended up doing this mm-hmm. But they were bracing up for 2,000 intensive care admissions in in the exhibition hall at the peak of the pa- pandemic. Um, the state only had about 475 ICU beds before. Um, so this would have 
constituted like a 300% increase wow. if they'd taken over this building. It's been, Victoria has been scaling up to treat, like everywhere in the world, to treat the large numbers of critically ill people. And while they have been also taking part in huge amounts of renovations, because the renovations were due to be finished in 2020, mm. they've also not only been renovating it, but they've been turning it into a makeshift hospital. Wow. However, this is how I found out about all of this about two weeks ago. So for anyone listening, that would be kind of mid-May, end of May. A group of about 20 people vandalized the facade of the World Heritage listed Royal Exhibition Building. Police are hunting the group, which was seen by security staff tagging the front doors, steps, signs with red and white graffiti between 8.30 and 9.15. The southern facing side of the building, including the bluestone front front steps and ceremonial front entrance received a $20 million refurbishment that had just been completed in the previous weeks. You can't just paint over this. It needs special treatment. The bluestone is permeable. It took them seconds to graffiti it, but it will take a long time to remove the graffiti properly. They've started to make arrangements to remove the graffiti, but to me, literally, if anyone knows who these <laughs> a-holes are go string them up for me as someone who spends a lot of time in their lives trying to remove trash stump stuff from buildings the idea that this building that has helped the australian population show its innovation greet its immigrants treat its citizens and host its olympics that someone could just go along and tag it. And by the way, I'd like to point out if anyone who knows these taggers is listening, it wasn't even good graffiti. It was like legitimate just tag scrolling names. This was not Banksy level art. Yeah. This was just vandalizing. Yeah, that sucks. And I can't believe that 20 people would go out. I can't believe that there's 20 such horrible people. I can't believe there's would, 20 people living in Australia. That would go out and vandalize one of these most important buildings. Anyway, that was a long bit. That was a long bit. But I, like I said, I really got into it. And I, I think that these two buildings, I mean, one, because of what we're doing here, the idea that it burnt down and the conspiracy theories behind that and, and that kind of stuff was really interesting. But really, if you want to talk about a legendary building, a building that has seen so many openings, it's sort of the first parliament of Australia. Mm hmm. I don't know that there's a more legendary building. I mean, the White House hasn't seen all the stuff that this building's oh, seen. Oh, no, and it never, probably never will. No. It will never be as, I mean, as important as a building that is in the United States. It will never do all of those things. No, I don't know that there is a another building that I could think of that has worn as many hats, played as many roles. There's so many iterations. In yeah. One. And constantly evolving. And I think if any building should go down as legendary, mm -hmm. this building... Plus, yeah, it looks freaking cool. It it sort of is a representation of like Australian culture yeah. as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in the sense that it was in, like being used in a pandemic to care for its citizens. Yeah, it's it's everything good and bad and great and real about what I think people appreciate so much about the Australian culture. Mm. Um, I mean, all the other stuff, the rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne, the burning down and stuff is is kind it, of it's interesting noise but this building this great exhibition this palace mm -hmm. royal palace deserves as much love i think as any building could almost have mm. 
And so now that we've finished showering all of that praise on this on this building, yeah. um, how embarrassed do you think you're going to be when you find out that Canberra is the capital city of Australia? So embarrassed <laughs> that I don't think it had even occurred to me that that would be the case. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, yep, Canberra. Damn, Google. Is the capital city of Australia, founded following the Federation of the Colonies of Australia as the seat of government for the new nation. Uh, in 1901, January 1901. Yeah, well, uh, and that was the case, but it must not have been finished until at least after 1927. Oh, I'm not. I, I'm Doesn't, just, you're just reading I'm reading the, the very okay. cursory All right. two paragraphs. Did you know that? Of course I didn't know that. I didn't even know that was a city in all. I know Adelaide. Yeah. I know Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I know Sydney. I know the Gold Coast, which isn't a city. It's a beach. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. I know the Opera House. Okay, so we've just found, like, the world's best pub quiz question. What the, What is the capital city of Australia? Yeah. That's not fair, because Mike was born in Australia. Oh, Our that quiz is master true. Was blo- quiz- but he's the quiz master, so I guess yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah, but how many other people do you reckon would know that? I would not. I feel like people would literally toss a coin and think it was Melbourne. And yeah. I thought it was Melbourne. I would have probably guessed Sydney. Actually, you know what? Because I read this and I knew it wasn't Melbourne after 1927, I would have probably guessed Sydney. <laughs> and the Opera House and the iconic iconography of so what's interesting so i'm going to show you a picture of it okay. what does that look like that looks like the mall in dc oh it really does it really it's really does look like the mall in dc and i think and it, for a capital city let me say hmm. <laughs> not much going on there that's australia yeah i know but if you look at pictures of, <laughs> of like sydney and melbourne sydney and melbourne well, i think it's it's like strictly it is so it's also established a bit like dc in the sense that it's like within it's like within so DC is constructed within D, in within yeah. Virginia, but it's not a part of Virginia. It's yeah. like its own thing. It's the same thing with this, with Canberra, which I think is how it's pronounced. Capybara. Yeah, like Capybara. Yeah, that looks a lot like the mall. It really does. Which I didn't. I mean, this is all we're learning this, like by the second. Real time. Real time learning. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Very. Ooh, I want to go and see the. Annual Canberra Nara Candle Festival. That looks beautiful. Don't know what it's about, but it's really gorgeous. Here you go. Look at that picture. Oh, wow. So do they, they fill up that body of water then? Is that the... I don't know. All right, guys. Cool. We want to learn more. Yeah. Uh, sorry that we didn't know that. All right, guys. So that was my segment. Reverse. And mine was, I think, po- full of positivity. Only a little bit of native slaughter. Just a mild amount of <laughs> genocide. It's a mild amount of genocide. It won't be the first time I'm sure that genocide comes up in this particular thing. No. But I think generally that was a very positive I like that. Moment. So you went legendary in a very different way. You. I didn't expect to go legendary in that way. I, it was no. t- totally like a deep dive that I did not yeah, expect to do. But but apt. Very. I think, I think out of any building that we could have chosen, it would. Could have read. I, I mean, honestly, the 10 pages of notes I have in front of me were taken from about a 25-page pile of notes that mm-hmm. I put together. Yeah. So I, I could have done... I mean, guys, if you have any interest in historical architecture and what a building can mean to a place, go learn about it. And if you're in Australia and you have no idea what I'm talking about, shame. I'm sure they know. I'm sure they I do. would guess they do. We're I'm also hoping you knew that every, you're, every, you're, you're capital. capital. <laughs> As opposed to everyone living outside of Australia who thinks the whole country is upside down. In which case, we're all shamed. All shame. Shame on us. All right. I'm going to sit back now because I did I did my work. And actually, that cheered me up. Good. You uh, So two things before I start yeah. online. I went legendary in a di- much different way. Yes. Uh, I went legendary 
much along the vein of how we do most of our episodes. Went a little creepy. Yep. Um, I also didn't do nearly as much research as you did, which is fine. That's um, fine, because mine just took like 50, 50 minutes? minutes, and we try and keep this podcast generally around an hour. Right. So, like I said, I went in the, much in the same vein that we normally do for these yeah. episodes. I tried, well, didn't even really try, because this is a building that heavily influenced my, my early years. And is naturally very creepy. Uh, yes, it is naturally very creepy. Although I did find a, a photographer who would say differently. Um, I don't know what his name was. I didn't bother doing any of that because it didn't seem like it would come up. But um, he made his career photo- photographing places like mm-hmm. this. And he was like, it's not creepy. He's like, I feel very privileged to be able to walk around in a place with so much history. But I, I honestly think that's kind of how I'd feel because people find the old house. Guys, for those that... Don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the old house here. Check out our other podcast. It's called History Through a House. Um, we we feel lucky and privileged to live in a very old house here. Yes. And it's apparently haunted. Um, it's got witch's marks. It's got witch's marks. It's a pretty cool old house, and we tell the story of that very specifically through our other podcast. Mm-hmm. But although it's supposed to be haunted, I never find it very creepy in there. No. No, I don't either. And this place I I have been in several times, and I do find it very, very creepy. Um, Maybe because I wasn't as familiar with it, but we'll get into that in a bit. He was drunk. I was not drunk. I was working. Um, So I did a little bit of research on the Athens Lunatic Asylum, which I will, from here on out, be referring to it as the Ridges. That's what it's called now. That's what it's been called for two or three decades. That's just what we're going to call it. The Ridges was a hospital for the mentally insane, operating between the years of 1874, finally shutting its doors in 1993. It's 119 years of patients passing through its halls, moving through its doors, all of Wait, that Wait, what stuff. year did it shut? 1993. The year wow, I was, that's quite recent. The year I was born. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, 119 years. To put that in perspective, the state of Ohio was founded... I don't. I can't off the top of my head think of what word that is when the state is brought into the country, but was founded in 1803. So I mean, not very long afterward, this people went crazy. This hospital was was opened. Um, it is a style of hospital known as the Kirkbride Plan, which I'm going to go into here in a little bit. It's sort of the Kirkbride Plan revolutionized how hospitals were built for the care of their patients. I'm actually going to go into that right now. Woo! So the name Kirkbride comes from Thomas Story Kirkbride. He was an American physician. He would go on to write a book called the, and this is very wordy, on the construction, organization, and general arrangements of hospitals for the insane. This book. Catchy. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. This book was based around a movement in that was very popular in Europe a century or two before this, I think, called moral treatment, where hospitals were changing, again, how they were treating their patients. Previously, previous to moral treatment, depending on what your class, your social class, if you your family was rich and you had a mental illness, they would either pay for you to just live in your house forever or they would pay to have you isolated in a, in a hospital. If you were poor, you were generally cast out onto the street and left, you were probably going to be imprisoned or put into what was called a madhouse at the time. These didn't operate much differently than prisons from what I could find. 
conditions were terrible. Okay, next time we do this, I'll do Bedlam, which is the opposite of what I was doing. Yes, I'm, we did mention Bedlam. I do remember this. But yeah, so the madhouses were terrible, horrible conditions. I mean, generally the people in there were like tortured. They weren't they weren't given any treatment. They were treated as subhumans. And I think we even talked about Bedlam. You said that there was a section where they would pay to let people could pay to come in and gawk. So that's that's basically what we're talking about right now. The moral treatment. Wait, that was what they changed to? No, that's what okay. they changed from. Okay. The moral treatment. The moral treatment is based on the idea that a mental illness can be cured. Okay. As we know, some can, some can't. You know, they but they were under the impression that a treat that mental illness, like any sickness, could be treated. They were gonna give it a shot. Well, they were. So the the idea was, if a patient got enough rest, had regular sleep schedules, ate healthy. And walked around in nature, you could cure them of anything from epilepsy to whatever, whatever mental illness you could prescribe. Okay, let's just point out that reality is that actually makes a huge difference to people's mental health. It does. A lot of those things are very, very positive. But and they it, make, yeah. it is a bit of an optimistic way of looking at curing some mental illnesses. Yes. As much as it, as much as that does aid symptoms and like overall mental health. I find that just going out for a walk, I mean, will increase my mood tenfold. Obviously, very, very helpful. But in terms of curing things As he like had that, to run away and do when I was in a real funk this yes. morning. But in terms of curing these things, it is it is a bit optimistic. And that sort of plays into what happens to these mental institutions down the road. So Kirkbride, we're going to go back to him, uh, was a superintendent at the Philadelphia Hospital for the Insane. And he commissioned a building a more spacious building to be built in the countryside. But he th thought that that wasn't good enough. He said, yes, the building is outside, but we need to design these buildings in a way that is conducive to healing. So they, they, they purposefully would build these hospitals in a very specific way because he thought, based on your environment, the yeah. healing process could be quickened. So here, I'll show you a picture. This okay. is I'd also like to point out that all buildings are built outside. Yeah, in the countryside, like more in more more in the countryside than okay. outside. They weren't building buildings in buildings. So this is the top of the ridges. That's an aerial view of the ridges. Oh, it's quite pretty. It's described as a, it's a V, like a flock of birds. I like that. And so the idea behind this, all the rooms got views. Yes, that's very very important. That's why they're offset like that. That's actually a nice little piece of architecture it's there. A, yeah. So the the architect Tom. Levi Schofield, who designed the ridges, mm -hmm. also designed, and this is where I could have done my tie-in. Okay. He also designed the Ohio State Reformatory, which okay. is in the city where I grew up. Wait, reformatory being a word for prison? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, where the Shawshank Redemption was filmed. Hmm. I think parts of Green Mile were filmed there as well. Okay, just on, that's the front of it? It's a beautiful, beautiful building. It is so gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. Um, wow, can't wait to stick these pictures up on Instagram. <laughs> They're two of the most haunted buildings in Ohio. They were designed by the same man. They're built two and a half hours from each other, and they are considered two of the most haunted buildings in the state. I really, like, it's like not that. to sound wooji, because I know that's not really what we do here, although we wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't a little bit of, like, hoodoo, wooju. hoodoo in us. I don't get, like, a creepy, I don't get, like, a icky a vibe, vibe off it. So that, yeah, I'm looking at old, I'm looking at photos of it now. Yes, so it, it has been sort of reappropriated in its more recent years. Uh, the state did pay for it to be redeveloped, um, and then Ohio University actually took it on as part of the campus. There's an art museum there, there now. There's a cafe. Um, like in the building? Yeah. 
Uh, the recycling center where I worked is on the property, so it's really been sort of taken in and then brought back to a functioning. Look, someone building. made it in Minecraft. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like that the American Victorian, right? It's cool. It's yeah, really gorgeous, and I can't believe that I went to Ohio and I didn't see it. Shame. Um, and it's in one of my favorite places in the in the whole world. So I do have a bit of a soft spot for it. Yeah. Um, like I was, I was saying, it was a, appropriated. A, yeah. Quite a large portion of it is, but there is a lot that still remains abandoned, un, unused, and not abandoned because people. Did they use the front bit? That's the that's the museum. That's okay, the, cool. That's Lynn Hall. So you walk into that, and then the museum's on either okay. side. And it's I never actually went to the museum. So when you're in university, you can't be bothered to do things like that, mm -hmm. even though it's right on your doorstep, and you walk past it every. And now day. you wish you'd gone. And now I wish I'd gone. Uh, okay, sorry. Tell me about no, it. Oh, that is all right. So back to. Back to Kirkbride a little bit. So when he was discussing the construction of these buildings, he wanted construction with treatment in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, he also went as far as to suggest building materials, color of paint, how to avoid vermin and other bad smells, anything that would bother a patient. So you know how sometimes when we talk about people and we don't think we should like them and mm -hmm. then suddenly we do, we go into them more and we realize we like them. He's a good dude. He seems like a really good dude from the offset. <laughs> yeah, he's a really good guy. Okay, cool. He doesn't really do anything shifty. Nice. I like it when I can actually root for somebody. He also in this book mentions the ideal demeanor for your staff members, which I which I don't think was ever. They were like hiring prison guards. Like in terms of Willowbrook, which wasn't construct which was constructed much later than this, mm -hmm. shut down before this. I will also add, they were basically just hiring like thugs. Well, I think Bedlam was construct. Bedlam was certainly running around after this, time. this. Oh yeah, like in the same manner. Even I think I don't know how they were treating patients in this, but I'm. Um, Guessing perhaps better than it in starts, Bedlam. It starts off with the best intentions. Okay. Things sort of go downhill. Well, tell me about it. Right. <laughs> I'm still talking about the building because <laughs> I think the construction is very, very important. Okay, go for it. Right. And so it's separated left and right, wings, segregation by gender, and then severity of illness. Um, with the more severe, which is an interesting thing as well because we talked about with Willowbrook, they were throwing anyone with yeah. any illness together. So this is sort of part of that moral yeah. treatment thing. And the idea was that the better you got, the further you moved down the halls. I like it. Moving closer to the exits. I like it. There's an issue with this, and it's that a lot of people were, were this is where like institutionalization of people with mental illnesses becomes very, very prevalent. Because people were admitted, and then they never really were cured, so they just stayed, they lived there forever. And that's not really the the goal, and that's not a sustainable model either because it was designed for people to move in, get better, and leave. Okay. Right, and then the design, high window, big tall windows, um, open hallways allows for full airflow and sunlight like regardless of the time of day. As you noticed by the design, which I'm very impressed with. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it was also built American Victorian style. The staff was also, also sort of, they treated it like a Victorian home. Doctors sharing meals with the patients. I like it. As much as this doesn't go into the ghosty stuff, I just think that this is, like, really interesting. And I think that, like, architecture for me is super, like, even, I think. We're both huge architecture buffs. Yeah, and I never was until I, I think, even before I moved into the your old house. Mm -hmm. Because it tells a lot about, like, like with the Melbourne, with the building, building in Melbourne, it just goes to show what the culture was yeah. at the time. And this showed a huge move in the idea that mental health was something that was important and something that needed to be dealt with in a healthy way. I think it's extraordinary that this was going on at the time it was going on. Right, yeah. It is like it, amazing. Yeah. So 
the impact of this book was is impossible to deny. In between 1840 and 1880, the United States only had 18 mental hospitals, and then 139 were built in that 40-year wow. period. So it's undeniable to, to yeah. talk about how important this is. It was a symbol for the cure of insanity. Again, overly optimistic, but a, a kind sentiment. At least it was it about... Was on, it was in the forefront of people's Yeah, minds. at least the idea was to cure exactly. as opposed to hide. Exactly. Um, as well as a civic and social... What does this word even say? Oh, it was civic and social. Uh, it was an achievement to have one of these buildings in your city. Okay, like cities were because these were state funded, like government federally funded. So cities were clamoring to have them because it showed that your society was kind and benevolent. Yes, you were. You were sort of seen as yeah, as a kind, very kind place to have one of these. Now we unfortunately get to the downfall, and this is sort of what happens to the ridges. We should probably just stop right here, and we'll just stay with this. Was a wonderful build. Okay, go on. Uh, so. The downfall is overcrowding, as many mental illnesses can't necessarily be cured. They can be treated. Yeah. People can still be treated with the dignity that they de- they deserve as living people. You're, but they're not moving out. No, like you're you can't cure Down syndrome, unfortunately. So a lot of these people were being moved in, and then they weren't able to leave. So it was. I think it was built. And for, it wasn't a question of understanding Down syndrome as being something that just wasn't curable wasn't curable and was something that you adapted to. Yeah, exactly. Not yet, ne- not necessarily curable. Um, so I think it was constructed for something like 800 people originally, which isn't a large number of people when you think about like hospitals. And then it was at a certain point it was operating at three times its capacity. Okay. Um, you also have a shift in cures at a certain point. I believe it was in the 70s um, toward lobotomies, insulin comas, electroshock therapy, and then heavy psychotics. The fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and then in the 70s, there was large defunding of places like this. I wonder if the defunding led to the lobotomies and stuff. Because that's, let's face it, a lot cheaper than fresh I air and good food. I think... Or was it the opposite way around? I think the cures came, and then defunding happens. And then there's also... So these places were built, and the Ridges specifically had a lot... had. The ridges specifically had livestock on the property, farming fields, gardens, orchards, a greenhouse, a dairy, and a carriage shop. The idea being much like you you try to ingrain the idea in prisoners' minds that they can work once they leave prison to keep them from being institutionalized. They did the same yeah. thing with the idea okay. that the more time you spent outside, the healthier well, you were. were. I don't know if you did any of this research. Were criminally insane people committed there? Yes. Okay. Um, there seemed to be a bit of, there's a period of time where people could be diagnosed for anything. People were being, di- like women were being diagnosed because this was like the 1800s for being in birth for too long. Um, I have I have some of the, the most ridiculous, oh, menopause. So if you were over the age of whatever, you could be committed. I'm just saying I've seen some people go through menopause. Menstrual derangements. Oh. Over pregnancy and over pregnancy, like people for being repre- for being in labor for too long were being institutionalized in this. Surely that was a quick solution. You'd think so. Okay. Hard to say. Um, I mean, this is a, this would be a bit of a prickly one, but people were being institutionalized for intemperance, which is just alcoholism. Which I mean, a fair, but people were being admitted and then. I mean, they were probably left. cured of their alcoholism, but never, ever left the, the building. Okay. Uh, it was actually the first 
patient was a 14-year-old girl whose name I couldn't find. Okay. Who was epileptic, which is a thing that you can treat, can't yeah. cure. But they thought she was possessed by a demon. Did they exercise her? No, they did not that I could find. Oh. Not that I could find. And that's literally all the information I could find on oh. her anyway. And she, did she ever get released? No. <laughs> okay. I could find. So... I, like I mentioned, uh, and another part of the downfall is that in the 60s, like I was mentioning all the working farms, laws prohibited you from being, from allowing, in, like, patients to work. Oh, okay. Because, I, I don't know if it's a workers' rights thing, but it doesn't imply that they were ever worked harder than, you know. They weren't slaves. No. It, it, labor. No, they weren't slave labor. They were helping run the, they weren't, these places weren't completely self-sufficient. But these these patients were helping run it in a in a way, yeah. Which I think is which Economy. is it's it's nice. Like I in in the sense that it was part of their cure. Mm-hmm. I don't see any reason why they would have defunded this. I think there must have just been a and I didn't look into why this would have been, but there must have just been a super large push in the sixties for or one one place did a very poor job of yeah. it. But it never implied that the bridges ever did anything like that. But okay. when we get a bit into the treatment of patients, it's possible that it happened okay. there as well. Okay, so while the Ridges was in operations, this was in the 50s, it was the largest, the 1950s, it was the largest employer in Ohio, Mm -hmm. with 1,800 patients sitting on 1,020 acres, serving 15 counties in the southwestern part of... Sorry, how many patients? 1,800. So, legitimately, like, three times the amount of people supposed to help. Yeah. Okay. We start to see a decline in patient care. Overpopulation, over admittance, like I mentioned, people who had no right to be there, like teenagers, rebellious teenagers were being admitted. Um, I have a puppy, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> as well as the push for invasive treatment, which is where a lot of these asylums, even if they operated perfectly for the entire yeah. entirety of their operation, still are slapped with the stigma of like one flew over the co- cuckoo's nest syndrome. And does it seem like up until the 60s and 70s that they It were, seemed like they were fine. They were doing the best they could. Yeah. I mean, th- they were probably still overpopulated. Yeah. Um, but it did seem like they were trying to do more of the like, I don't want to say holistic because I don't mm-hmm. think that's the right word, but sort of like... Palliative? Uh, no. I don't know. Well, it was a well-rounded care. Yeah, it seemed okay. to be at least. Um, I probably should have gone into that a little bit, but so now we talk about invasive treatment. Yeah. Um, and one of the legends that comes with the ridges, and that's Doctor Walter Jackson Freeman the second. And okay. as much as Thomas Story Kirkbride was <laughs> a bro, Jackson Freeman is a hoe, an ass. He is known as the lobotomist. Okay. That's his moniker. That's what he went by. Okay. Lobotomy. We're going to go into this very quickly in case no one knows what you it is. You promised me I'd have at least a working <laughs> knowledge of lobotomy before the end of this. A form of psychosurgery that involves severing the connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Okay. I had no idea what the, that part of your brain did. Cursory not, uh, information says it's the, the Center for Complex Cognitive Behavior including your personality and how you manifest that uh, decision-making, including, like, understanding consequences. The difference between good and bad is that's heavily policed in that part of your brain. And what they were doing... At what point can I make a joke about the fact that you keep hitting the front of your head on the doorways around here? (laughs) That's because I want to lobotomize myself. (laughs) Okay. I'm trying very, very hard. So what they were doing, what this this doctor was doing, he visited the... And this was insane to me because I thought he had worked there, 
He visited seven times between 1953 and 1957. Okay. And in seven visits, performed over 200 lobotomies. Jeez. Yeah. So, and when he showed up in Athens, he was, like, lauded as a hero because they didn't really understand what these... Okay, so are we villainizing him from our perspective? A bit. Because it, it does show that lobotomies occasionally, I'm not advocating for lobotomies, but they are occasionally a, a cure for a cure for things. And like before some, you had psycho drop, like before you had Yeah, before you had psychotic, psychotic drugs. drugs. And, and the way he was doing these, he would give them electroshock therapy first, which is another horrible yeah. thing. So he would fry their brains until they had seizures and passed out and then perform the lobotomies before they woke up. Okay, I was trying to be like He's really fair. I was trying to be fair to He's him, which is like, jerk. honestly, if he thought that that was the right, people used to drain people's blood using leeches. Yeah, not because that they were particularly cool or evil, no. but they just genuinely thought that was yeah the this, best way this to is do a it. Huge, huge step back in the reason that these buildings were constructed. Yeah, it sounds like it, and it sounds like he was also kind of not even maybe, trying. Maybe a bit psychotic, <laughs> but it, I think it's indicative of the overcrowding because these places were struggling yeah. to. To Once people were lobotomized, were they released? They could be. They could okay. be released back to their homes. And okay. I mean, occasionally they weren't because they, you know, they were hemorrhaging from their brains yeah. or having some. Some people would develop epilepsy afterward. But there was an account of one woman, and one woman is anecdotal. Yeah, who said that her husband came back and they, he went through a period of what they called mental infancy, where you sort of had to sort of train them like you would a puppy, and then they grew out. That healed, and they grew out of it. It's a very cruel way of talking about a person with an illness that should have been treated in a myriad yeah. of different ways. But, it, I mean, it, it, there was an indication that this was working in some fashion. There was uh, – so i really into the concept of decision-making and how decision-making is made in your brain. Yeah. Um, Adam knows this about me. And one of the books I read recently talked about a person who had a minor, uh, minor blood vessel bleed. And it totally removed his ability to be able to make decisions. And he could train, he did eventually teach other parts of his brain to make those decisions for him. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And it's the brain is so unknown. I would never suggest, I don't want to sound like I'm advocating for this at all. There is a level of ignorance, but I do think that ultimately this man was just like psychotic, a, a psychopath. Yeah. One of the attending doctor, attending doctors at the ridges. Uh, was quoted as saying, I do not remember which made me more aghast, the hammering of the picks into the brain or the simultaneous movements of the pick handles in the doctor's hands. There's some some bit of his legend, because he's one of the legends that I talk about, because he is now widely known as one of, like, the worst doctor, practicing Uh doctors. The part of his legend is that he just got ice picks from his house. I don't want to talk about it on this podcast because it makes me very, very squeamish. Um, but just the way that that operation is done is absolutely horrifying. It's not a precision operation, is it? No, they pound two ice picks through your nostril, nostrils through the top, the bottom part of your skull, and then... Hope for the best. Well, and then they just, they just take the handles while they're in your nose and just pull them apart to sever the, the connection. And there's no, like... Yeah, okay. It's, it's awful. It's terrible, terrible. Oh, and he charged $25 a, a surgery. Just, I thought that was interesting. Okay. So, you know, he made like $4,000. I was just trying to do that <laughs> math in my head. Okay, yeah, all right. He made cool. like $5,000 yeah. while he was doing this at the at this specific hospital. So, like, that's awful. And that's a bit of, like, the 
the the true legend of of the ridges. Um, and now I'm going to go into a bit of a ghost story. Cool, do it. Uh, so this is a story about Margaret Schilling. She was a patient at the hospital, and one night she was playing hide and seek with the nurses and the patients. So I think this happened. I wish I would have. This this had happened. This happened 20 years after. The lobotomy guy. Oh, post lobotomy. I was yeah. gonna say pre lobotomy. She was here in, in like this in like seventy eight, okay. I think. So it's interesting because now that it seems like it never operated any differently. You know, I was talking about the Victorian yeah. home thing earlier. It seems like they were still doing that sort of like patient cool. care thing, which I think is a little bit interesting. She was playing a game of hide and seek with the nurses and other patients in her ward, um, and the nurses never noticed that she didn't turn back up. Sweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, until the next day, and they started looking for her through the hospital. They didn't find her for 42 days mm-hmm. when a maintenance worker opened a locked door in a moderately unused part of the ridges and found her decomposing body on the floor. Gag. Um, what's interesting about this is the the sources, I found two different, some conflicting sources. I, this might just be to increase the, increase the creepy bit, the creepy factor. I'm going to show you. Right. So they find her body, and there's a stain left where her body was found. Okay. And despite many efforts to remove it, the stain persists to this day. I, I went and saw it. You're not supposed to. It's in one of the locked-off parts of the building. It's horrifying. Okay. It's, it's, the, it's, like, the, it's like an initiation in, in that university to go touch it. If you go to Ohio University uh, right now, don't. Break into the ridges and touch the stain. I'm, <laughs> do it. I'm not advocating breaking and entering. I am. Yeah, that's fine. You can do that. I know nothing about Ohio. I will never go there again. Here's her stain. It, 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 it can hardly be confused as like a human body. So you can't see her arms because her arms were crossed when they found her. That's pretty creepy. And uh, to increase the creepy factor, she died of... It's weird that you can, like, totally see her buttons. I know. that's. They mentioned that. They mentioned that, like, her outline is very voluptuous. Oh, no. This is a curvaceous woman. Sorry. Sorry, Margaret. Sorry, ghost of Margaret Schilling, if Look, you're listening at to least this. What, at least you leave a beautiful corpse. What is it? Yeah, die who, fast. Who that? Who die the... fast, leave a beautiful corpse. I don't know who that like was. Kurt Cobain or Jimi no, Hendrix? I thought or... it was, like, Marilyn Monroe said something about, like... Oh, maybe. Live fast and whatever. Live fast, die young. <laughs> yeah, bad okay. girls do it well. Yeah. Thanks, MIA. All right, whatever. Um, so she died of a heart failure, but they found her naked with her clothes folded beside her. There's no indication that she was sexually mistreated. It's possible that she just got uncomfortable, okay. took her clothes off, and knew that she was going to starve. Do to we death know what her there. diagnosis was? Nope. All right, I was just interested to know. If yeah, knew but what she her was given quite was. a bit of freedom, so okay. it's. it's she was probably in one of the wards closer to the exit. Yeah. Um, and she's like the ghost. She's like the Ridges ghost. If you oh. if you walk past the ward where she was found, you can see her in the window. And like I said, people have gone. I have gone and touched the stain. Not to sound insane, but like one ghost. That's not bad. No, but there are like so the building has like a reputation for general ghost sightings. Okay. Um, you know voices. Uh, flickering lights, um, screaming, stuff like that. Okay. Uh, but, like, in terms of... In lo- terms of creepy bad stories about a lunatic asylum. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the general screaming is often attributed to... The lobotomy know, Yeah, to just, like, patients and stuff. Another creepy bit 
are the cemeteries. So there are three cemeteries on the property. 2,000 bodies are buried or interred there. Okay. It's a, it's a pretty big, pretty sizable cemetery. 700 me- women and 959 men lie under unmarked graves. Um, so that's another, you walk that's up, sad. you walk up to the pro and a lot of them are veterans cause they interred a lot of like civil war vets and like yeah. Vietnam war vets and a lot of people obviously suffering from post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. I did find that in the last, I want to say 30 or 40 years, an organization came and said, listen, we have to like do some, something about this. Cause we have like vets buried here and they need to be given mm-hmm. proper burials and stuff. So that they did go through the the, the ledger and a... tried to identify the bodies. Um, what's interesting about the ledger is it takes another, and another reason why the cemeteries are so creepy or are perceived as being so creepy is because you can't just go look at the ledgers. Like you can in old prisons and stuff. Okay. It's behind like a series of red tape that okay. takes a lot of time to get. Well, it's people's medical records. I understand a that. lot of it. Yeah. But like you think names maybe. Yeah. But I, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. And you know, it's creepy, broken headstones. We'll throw a picture in. But I, I used to walk up it every day, up past one every day to work. It does sort of like take your breath away to see something like that. Yeah. Uh, and finally is the tuberculosis ward. It, that's okay. the building you talk about when you talk about the ridges is the TB ward because it was originally opened to house uh, patients who were suffering okay. from TB. It's the last abandoned building on the property. It overlooks a cemetery. It's been abandoned for like 50 years. And if you go into one of the bottom rooms, I believe I saw this as well, but I can't, this might just be a false memory. Um, there's some graffiti, someone scrawled on the wall. It says, leave before they harvest your corpse. Ooh. And it's horrifying because the room's not lit very well and you just sort of see it on the wall. That's like proper haunted house stuff. Yeah, it's 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 spooky. And it also has the a very famous room called the piano room. Okay. There's a piano, an abandoned piano in the middle of a room for no reason. It's terrifying, and that was totally someone playing a practical joke like the, forty years. I'm ago. sure. I'm sure. I, well, they use it. They use that property for storage. They, oh, okay. they used it for storage for years. Someone probably just put it in there, and forgot about it. Yeah. But one of the bits is you go in and steal a key off of it, which I mean, you go and look at it. There aren't many keys left. But we talk about our skepticism on this. I'm a highly skeptical person. Would never ever have the bottle. Nope. To go into a room. But then with to piano me, that's in. theft and petty vandalism. So I wouldn't have it. For yeah, that but reason. the piano isn't. You know, references, well, that as well. But it, I mean, I still, as much as I agree with that, I probably still would have gone and stolen a key because I don't have as many squabbles about that in my brain. I mean, I think the people who, uh, left it, who vandalized the, the building in Melbourne should be hit by a bus. But stealing a piano key, I, I view as a little bit different than that. So yeah, that, that's the building, that's the piano room. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, like, so when we talk about the old house being creepy, I want to kind of go. Yeah. I want to go into why the ridges are creepy. Because, oh, old house. Because no. you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Dora's old house. You look like confined spaces are are scary. Like, because a lot of old hospitals and a lot of old buildings aren't designed this way, and the way that the ridges were. Yeah. Built, the corridors are very tight. Windows yeah. are very small. Yeah. Very dark and stuff, and that's that makes that scary. The ridges are scary for like a dip for the opposite reason, which I know is weird to say that both things can be equally terrifying. But I walked through abandoned parts of this building in broad daylight with sunlight streaming in through the windows. And I've never, with people, with my coworkers, and I've never been more terrified in my entire life. That is, yeah. I mean, honestly, and I think it's, your skin can crawl for various reasons. Yeah, and I think it might, you know, because 
a lot of the horror that's attributed to these buildings, to this building specifically, and a lot of buildings yeah. that are supposedly haunted is attributed to the horrors that occur. Like, that's yeah. the lobotomy patients who died on the operating table. Yeah. Although he didn't use an operating table, he'd frequently just do this in hallways. Nice. To, to further <laughs> talk about... He how sounds much, like a real prince. talk about how much I hate this man. Yeah, it's just, it is interesting, because you walk in and these windows are like 10 feet tall, and you have wonderful sunlight streaming in through a window but then you walk to a door that opens up into nothingness and you're like okay as somebody that owns and runs a wedding venue i'm just saying i could totally turn that into a baller wedding i venue. think people get married on the on the it's gorgeous yeah mm -hmm. absolutely gorgeous but yeah if it makes your skin crawl no one's getting married there. well yeah yeah i mean you could do enough work i think um wow okay so we actually had to Honestly, fairly positive stories. Yeah, uh, I think the the optimism that that went into the construction of the Kirkbridge yeah. um, asylums is very uplifting. Yeah, and, and it, the fact that so many states were they want they were they were trying they were to do this were it. wanted to help wanted to because let's face it that you're not doing this it's altru it's an altruistic thing to do that. Yeah, it is. It's and not there, the easiest and way. There to is house profit patients. in it, obviously, yeah, because. Yeah. But it also, it, it selfishly is a boost to your economy. But yeah, you're helping your economy grow. You're helping the the it's unfortunate. Great. I think it's yeah. I think it's fantastic. Um, Good for Gutenberg or whatever his name was. Kirkbridge. <laughs> there we go. And I think uh, it's nice because it was a drastically different way of doing outcome things. that I was expecting. I was expecting yeah. something a lot creepier and more terrible. Yeah. Um, and it's much better than Willowbrook was. Willowbrook was. Possibly the worst. Oh, and I don't know if you... We might throw these up as a comparison. Uh, I actually looked up the... And I, I'm sure you saw the the pictures of Willowbrook. Like, oh, um, not, not, don't look up the pictures of Willowbrook. Not, not the inside, but the construction of yeah. the building and how it's... It, it, it looks is, like a prison. It's drastically yeah. different. And so we might throw that up as like yeah. a comparison. Yeah, no, it's good to talk about. I mean, horrible things happening in both places, it's, but it's, it's really interesting to talk about two such different asylums. Yeah, because Willowbrook, and I think... This is, this is my final tangent, is that Willowbrook was built in, like, the 60s or 70s, I think. Around When was Reagan? The 70s. Because he tried to shut it down. So it was done... He was trying to shut it down. So it was built earlier than that. I think it was built to house World War II. Okay, 1965. Yeah, so, okay. Which is interesting because that's when... That's oh, it was right, Vietnam victims. It's right before the defunding of all of these okay. state... And so, yeah. you know, it's, like, in the middle of the... It is like the darkest. Oh, it's the beginning of the, of it's the darkest period yeah. of mental health treatment. In, yeah. In the oh, it's cool. It's really good to learn about something that wasn't. I yeah. mean, we've talked a lot about mental health, and I think it's going to come in a lot more because honestly, a lot of these legends and things like that are to do with whether it's the melon heads of Ohio or the. It's all the horrible Ak things that happen. Akabara. Ak oh, God, I learned how to say that word. Akihara. Akihara, forest in Japan. Um, you know, it, it it's definitely a theme. All right. What are we doing next? No idea. We haven't talked about it. This was sort of a slap. We didn't talk about the buildings this either. This was sort of a slapdash episode for me. Yeah, you just kind of, you were like, let's do buildings. Let's do buildings. Um, We've done, you know what we haven't done? Let's do like a classic. Oh, we have talked about doing classics, and then I think we both got sidelined by something else. Let's but... do a classic, okay. like classic legend. Like, um, okay. Hmm. Do you have an idea of what you're going to do? I have no idea. I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking maybe Bloody Mary. I think I found the house that's in Ohio where Bloody Mary was <laughs> okay. supposed well, to. Well, and have, that makes that might go something else. Was well, supposed to have lived in. Don't know. I might do. I might do something. Okay. I have no idea. 
Women in Black. Okay. Hmm. Okay. I might go some. You know what I mean? Yeah, some classic. Like a classic. Maybe I'll, I might try to find a, like a campfire story then. Yeah. Campfire monster. Oh, or yeah, can't do cropsy again. That made me so depressed. Yeah, maybe we'll find. Maybe we'll do a classic. Or yeah. maybe we'll come up with something totally different. Do we want to do like a classic campfire story or something that's just sort of like well known and sort of. Yeah, we can do a classic campfire. Yeah, let's do like a let's do a marshmallow toasting story. All right. Okay. Sound good. Sounds good to me. Cool. Thanks All for right. listening, guys. Bye. We'll see you next week.